0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Providence Money Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Isaac, Associate Advisor at Providence. Joined with me today is Lim Chun-Syong, Xiong, is an Investment Research Analyst at Providence. Hi, chun Xiong. Hi, Isaac. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming today. Okay, so in today's episode, we are going to be talking about what happened to the market in the first quarter of 2023. So,
1: Xiang, how has the market been since the start of the year? Mm, okay, so overall, quarter one has been very volatile. Um, at the start of the year January was uh, very good for the market. China opens up and the equity market actually declined 5 to 7%. Uh, market sees rate hike momentum also slowing down. Mm. So yields fell and bond went up as well. So in January, we are looking quite good for both. Bonds and equities. Now, in February, um, that was the opposite actually, because um, January inflation was actually higher than expected. Core CPI came out at a 5.6%, while consensus expectation was actually at 5.5%. So the bond gains were practically wiped out. There was gain from January actually, and equity paired its gain as market price in a higher rate, hike probability. So in March, we all heard about the banking crisis saga. At the start of the month, stocks got dragged down, but the financial sector, where uh, in the financial sector, where uh, small and mid-sized bank fell, uh, but you fell and bond climbed because now the market thinks that the Fed might need to slow the slow down, and or even stop on hikes to prevent a hard landing and be gentler on the liquidity tab. Now, near the end of the month of March, equities end up higher as stocks climb and more than offset the fall contributed by the small mid-sized banks. So, year to date as of March, actually, indexes, equity indexes actually on average went up nearly 7%, while uh, bonds on average actually went up 3%. And overall, it is quite positive right now.
0: Right so Junxiang, just now you mentioned that in March there was a banking crisis. Yeah. So what exactly happened and more specifically what happened to Silicon Valley Bank?
1: Okay. So um so just to give a brief history of um Silicon Valley Bank and how did it uh, collapse? Um so um first of all right we we need to know that Silicon Valley Bank um they have a very um quite a concentrated uh, clientele, mainly startups companies, tech startups companies that were backed by venture capital firms. So right. during uh, early 2020, um, there was an explosion of deposit growth for Silicon Valley Bank following the pandemic because of the quantitative easing. So you can think of the quantitative easing as uh, pumping money into the economy to prop it up because of the lockdown, everything is slowing down. So to give an idea how much the deposit grew, right? actually Silicon Valley banks' deposit uh, went up by 220% between 2020 to end of 2021. Now, while average banks actually grew during this time period at only 26%, now as the Fed tightens in 2022, liquidity starts to dry up and these startup clients started to withdraw their deposits. On top of that, Silicon Valley bank used the deposits to buy long-term bonds and security. What this means is that Silicon Valley bank will have trouble meeting withdrawals demands, which is exactly what happened. In fact, only 7% of their assets is in cash compared to the industry average of 13%. A plus, longer-term bonds are more sensitive to interest rate changes. And what this means is that when interest rates rise, they will have a high mark-to-market losses. Now, finally, on 7th of March this year, Silicon Valley Bank have no choice but to announce that they have to issue more equities and sell their bond securities to meet deposit withdrawals. The announcement right, actually triggered more the venture firms to inform their startups to withdraw even more money from the bank. Now, this led to what we, uh, we call the bank run and eventually the collapse of uh, Silicon Valley Bank. Now, to, to, to summarize, what this means is that the reason for the collapse is because of a concentration of clients in the startup space, as well as bad risk management. Right. So um, you mentioned that, you know, it's, it
0: seems quite specific to Silicon Valley bank, uh, quite idiosyncratic in a sense. However, there's a lot of headlines that mentioned about a contagion effect. So, what does this mean and do you think that there will be a contagion effect for the other banks, especially those globally systemic banks?
1: Okay, so um, maybe I, let me just um, explain what does contagion effect actually mean. Basically, it's a phenomenon in which the failure of one bank or more can uh, spread fear and panic among depositors of other banks, leading to a wider and more severe bank run. Right. Now, during a bank run, right, depositors rush to withdraw their funds from a bank usually because they fear that the bank may not be able to meet their withdrawal red- request if too many people try to withdraw at once so if the bank is limited to um normally if it's limited to one bank the bank can often use its reserve or seek assistance from the central bank to withdraw to meet the withdrawal and restore confidence but if the bank run triggers a contagion effect depositors of other banks may also start to withdraw their funds out of fear and their bank may f- be the next to fail. Now, this is what we call a systemic crisis in the banking system. And policymakers are very worried about this kind of um, systemic crisis, which is why when uh, when you see that there are um, the um, the US banks failing, right? Um, the the Fed actually came in and quickly tried to uh, calm the investors. Yeah. Now, in the current context of our US banks, we see the collapse of a Silvergate. Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, just to give a sequence right Silvergate Bank failed, and two days later uh, we we, uh, we see the Silicon Valley Bank starts to um, unravel itself, and following that it was a signature bank's collapse. So both Silvergate and Silicon Valley Bank were due to a bank run, which we can view as a not really a, uh, not really a contagion effect type of bank run. Because their common denominator was uh, concentrated clients in in silvergate's uh, context just now I did not mention is that their clients that were uh, uh, were concentrated in crypto startup clients and we know that you know during the uh, uh, past year the crypto actually fell and there was this FTX um, crisis that caused a lot of um, worries on cryptos so when these two banks actually failed right, it raised a, a worry that similar size banks and with a similar kind of clientele would actually fall as well now so so ki- signature bank was the you can consider that as the first um um first victim of this contagion effect because everyone started to worry that you know because signature bank has a sim- concentrated client of a crypto clients and the clients started to withdraw a lot of money, uh, leading to a like sort of like a self-fulfilling uh, effect. So, it's, in a way,
0: it's a contagion between like let's say Silvergate and Silicon Valley Bank, but it seems like it's contained, like, is Yeah. That so, what you're so, to so,
1: say? so Silvergate and Silicon Valley Bank is more um, an uh, isolated kind of event, but. The failure of these two banks subsequently raised the concern of a contagion effect at, uh, to similar-sized banks. And the Signature Bank was the first that, uh, that got impacted by these two failures. Yeah,
0: Right, but you said similar-sized bank. However, Credit Suisse stock plummeted and uh, UBS is, has taken over the bank. So as compared to Silicon Valley Bank, and First Republic Bank, Credit Suisse is a lot larger and more established and can be classified as a systematically important bank. So is this, is this something that we should be worried about? It seems like the contagion effect has now
1: affected the larger, more established financial institutions. Mm. Uh, okay, from a depositor standpoint, right? The straight answer is that there's nothing to worry about. The the central banks, regardless US or Swiss, were quick to take action when the crisis occurred. If we look at the US banks, um, Jerome Powell actually came out and said that all US depositors are safe and he will use whatever tools to ensure that. The Swiss National Bank actually provided a lifeline to Credit Suisse $54 billion to shore up their balance sheet and depositors in confidence. So now, beyond the depositors, we also have shareholders and bondholders. Now, the question is, are they safe? So before that, let me just explain the meaning of a systematically important bank. So a systematically important bank is a financial institution whose failure could pose a significant risk to the stability of the financial system and the broader economy. These banks, uh, we would deem them as too big to fail. But because of this uh, importance of this systemic, systematically important bank, right, uh, regulators and policy makers uh, closely monitor them. And subject them to more stringent regulation and supervision than other banks. These banks uh, they will require these banks to hold higher capital and liquidity buffers and undergo regular stress test- testings. So to, to give an example of systematically important banks, um, think about J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs in the in US. And um, in, in, uh, in Europe, you can think of like uh, HSBC, Barclays and uh, Royal Bank of Scotland. Okay, now we, we go back to Credit Suisse um, downfall. Uh, it is not a, I, I wouldn't say it's a sudden plummet of share price to, to per se, because this the downfall has been many years in the making. Okay, from being charged with bribery and fraud in the uh, Mozambique tuna bond scandal, where the officials actually, uh, they, the Credit Suisse actually bribed the officials and they were fined for it, to losing billions of dollars of clients' money on the Green Seal Fund, which they marketed as safe, and also having a too concentrated concentrated and huge exposure to Adgeos Capital Management, causing the Credit Suisse company to lose 5 billion. So Credit Suisse has been experiencing many scandals in the past few years. The, the Swiss, in, in fact, because of this, right, they have eroded their credibility. The last year, just last year only, their deposit fell by 40% which is roughly about $123 in 2022. And the fall of the banks, the US banks only acted as a catalyst for the the Credit Suisse downfall because investor sentiment actually caused the credit crisis uh, and kind of drove the Swiss bank share price down. And on top of that, uh, there was actually an interview with um, one of uh, Credit Suisse's largest shareholders, the Saudi National Bank. And that actually caused the, uh, the most um, fall in uh, its stock prices because when they, they interviewed the chairman of the Saudi National Bank and asked, uh, right now Credit Suisse is having a liquidity issue. Um, would you um, con- support them in, in this case? But the, the, the chairman of the Saudi National Bank actually mentioned that absolutely not. In fact, that was actually that caused the plummet in stock prices. The fall in uh, stock prices, right, is not big. Um, over the years, it's not caused by just these few incidents. To to give an example, right, dating back to um, two thousand and eight, right, uh, versus the current share price now, uh, Credit Suisse current share price before the crisis, right, is just three percent of what it was back in. 2009 so th- it has fallen over the years because of all these scandals and not just because of these few uh, recent happenings uh, 3% of uh, the total market capitalization yeah 3% of total market capitalization right. during 2009 so you can imagine how much it has fallen during that time so so in summary right we we first look at okay the common denominator for silvergate scb and signature bank Because they have concentrated companies while Credit Suisse collapse was due to their loss of credibility and the US banks fall, right? Just helped to catalyze their downfall. So, aside from these isolated cases, right? Now, because of the more stringent regulation I mentioned just now, right? The health of US and Europe banks' balance sheet is actually in very good condition. To give an example, right? Europe banks on average have a liquidity coverage ratio of 160% regulatory requires them to have a 100% requirement they have the ability to meet their short-term uh, obligations and it makes it's um so I, I don't see any um um anything right now that we should be worried about yeah
0: right so you mentioned that uh, most us or rather the larger banks in us and europe okay so let's talk about singapore banks so just to sum up should i be worried uh, about my money in Singapore Bank. Should I withdraw everything? Is my money safe?
1: Our Singapore banks have even a uh, stronger balance sheet. Uh, they are very well capitalized at uh, this point. And in fact, right, they are ranked most, uh, amongst the most strongest and safest in the world. So also you need, uh, we need to understand that, say for example, like for uh, Silicon, for the US banks, right, their client base is mostly startups. For our for for Singapore banks right, especially the trios, um, OCBC, DBS, and UOB right, they are they are mostly large corporates as well as a more high net worth clients. Therefore, the 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 likelihood of um, a sudden bank run from 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 all these um, large corporates and clientele um, is less likely compared to like right now where the where the, a clientele of a Startup firms uh, are facing um, uh, dried liquidity, right, and start a sudden withdrawal of their uh, money from there. Now, on on top of that, right, just now I mentioned that Silicon Valley bank deposits actually tripled, uh, almost double, doubled to tripled over the past uh, three years, but our Singapore banks actually rose only twenty two percent over these years. The sudden increase of the Silicon Valley Bank's um, deposit only only show that you know the the deposits come in fast and uh, it will go fast, while the Singapore banks um, deposits are more on the stable rise. One more thing to to note is that the the Silicon Valley Bank right majority of their deposits were were invested in securities and bonds. On Singapore banks, they tend to. Um, uh, earn a higher uh, profit from these depositors using loans, and with the rise in interest rate, right? Um, these loans that are um, uh, given to the uh, loaners and all that are all based on float. Uh, I mean, majority are based on floating rate. It, this means that they can transfer their the higher interest rate uh, burden to the clients.
0: Thanks, Chunxiang. So inflation has been dominating the headlines since the last year, but it seems to have taken a backseat due to this banking crisis. So do you have any updates about inflation and has it been coming down since the start of the year?
1: Okay, um, right now it appears that the problems related to the banking crisis are actually now easing. And the attention is now shifting back to inflation and interest rate hikes so uh if we want to look at inflation we use, uh okay let's say we use inflation us inflation rate as a guideline uh just now i mentioned right um in the the january inflation rate has been ticking up um ticking up the first time in four months so that that was um actually inflation uh being worse than expected in february the inflation has been in line with expectation now in march they just released yesterday march data the inflation rate was actually quite favorable. Um it was below consensus. So um so how will the Fed and the market interpret this? Interestingly, right, both parties seem to have a disagreement on the path of interest rates. If we look at the, the, the Fed's last monetary policy, they are forecasting a 5.25% of uh interest rate uh as of end of the year. While based on the market pri- market pricing of interest rate probability, it looks like the market is seeing a range of uh, between 3.75% and 4.5%. What this means is that the market is thinking that the Fed might be forced to reverse its interest rate given that the banking crisis might actually cause a worse than expected recession. Right. So is it a situation where the Fed is caught
0: between a rock and a hard place like if they cut rates to try to fix the banking crisis, they might lead to them not being able to slow inflation down and vice versa. So do you think that this is something that um, could spell at least more volatility for the rest of the
1: year? What we are looking right now is that um, there needs to be an alignment as things unravel to, to, um, to further explain, right? If we think about right now the dissonance between the Fed expectation of interest rate itself end of the year and the market if inflation gets worse the Fed might continue to uh follow its forecast and raise interest rate to 5.25% for example the market will then have to recalibrate the prices and we will see um, pr- we're, we're likely to see both bonds and Equities uh, fall in that sense. Um, however, if if the market is right that you know there is a the, the, the inflation gets better and the recession might be um, worse than expected, then the Fed might need to force its head, uh, might need to force their hands to reverse interest rate and we would see bonds perform better and market could be going either way. Right. So I'm going to put you on the spot here. I know at Providence, we don't
0: make forecasts. Just maybe your opinion. So would the Fed be able to achieve the so-called Goldilocks, you know, just right kind of policy, like they can manage to reduce inflation, but not crash the economy. Do you think that is a possibility or is it a pipe dream?
1: First of all, right. If we look at the recent data that's being released, right? Things are quite um I would say um rosy because if you look at inflation rate in March that was released yesterday, right? It was actually um better than expected. On top of that, recently they have actually also um released the unemployment rate and um job growth. So job growth actually was um below expectation, but unemployment rate was uh, actually came down by 0.1%. So uh, what what we, we see is that, yes, job growth has slowed down, but the unemployment rate is still looking good and inflation has been, uh, inflation is now, seems to be ticking down as well. So uh, based on this information, right, it does seems that the economy seems to be, um, is slowing down, but not as bad as we expect. And as well as, the inflation rate is uh, is also slowing down as well. That means that the previous interest rate hike might have some impact on, on this as well. So, yeah. Right. So it seems
0: like we're heading slowly but surely in the right direction. And uh, hopefully uh, Jerome Powell will be able to uh, get the sweet spot, lah. get the sweet spot and not, crash the, not cause the economy to go into a deep recession while he's trying to combat inflation. Uh, so it has been a very volatile first quarter of 2023, uh, and what we always tell our clients is to really hang on to your seats, and and stay invested because you know it has been quite a roller coaster. But you know, my equity markets has been it's still up despite all these talks of crisis, t- talks of you know inflation, recession. Uh, not to say that stocks will only go up from here or that it wouldn't plummet but it just really goes to show how hard is it to predict what stocks will do. Historically, I mean, you know, it makes sense to, to know what's going on, but also to hang on to your
1: seats and just stay invested. Yes, you're right. Uh, exactly. Because um, we wouldn't be able to time the market and know exactly what would happen. Um, but staying invested would definitely the, be the best way to go. Okay, so uh, that's
0: all for this week's episode. Thank you so much, Chun Xiong. And to all our listeners, I hope you enjoyed our Q1 market review. If you like this episode, please follow our podcast and follow us on social media for similar contents. As always, thank you for listening and I'll see you in the next episode. All analysis, views or opinions from interviews, recommendations and other information broadcasted, broadcasted or published herein are provided for general information purposes only. Information expressed does not take into account any specific situation, particular needs or objectives and should not be construed as specific advice or a recommendation. Information has been obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Always consult with a qualified investment, legal, or tax professional before taking any action. Provident Limited does not accept any liability for any loss whatsoever arising from any of use of the information broadcasted, broadcasted or published herein. All contents and information contained herein may not be copied or reproduced in whole or in part by any means without prior written consent of Provident Limited.